much horror business driving late at night. Psycho 78, 12 o'clock, don't be late, I said all this horror business. Greetings and salutations, my name is Justin Lohr. I'm Liam O'Donnell. And you... Was that funny? I'm sorry. It was, just, was it was so blasé. And you are listening to episode 132 of Horror Business. Horror Business? And today we're taking a look at some of the lesser known works of the late, great George A. Romero. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about 1988's Monkey Shines. I don't know why I said it that way. Monkey Shines. And 1993's The Dark Half. Now... When we're talking lesser-known Romero, I think people who know me might be surprised that this isn't a double feature of Martin and Knight Riders. I was literally about to say that. I was just about to fucking say, you're probably wondering why we're not doing Martin and Knight Riders, or, I don't know, Bruiser and... Oh, you know, i still never seen Bruiser. But never seen Bruiser be, either. That would be a great one to see. Yeah. Uh, you know what's funny? So this, I, I, I brought this up in the... Um, Twitch of the Death Nerf Discord, you know, recommend people go in there if they're interested. But uh, here's the thing that's true. I had brand confusion with monkey shots. And I realized as I was watching the movie, because I've seen it a number of times, that that brand confusion was wrong. But that's why for a second, when you suggested these two, I was like, this makes sense to me. Because when I was a kid, I was convinced because of the cover of another book that this was a Stephen King adaptation. Skeleton Crew. Yep. Yeah, I was sure. And it was only when I finally saw the movie that I'm like, this doesn't feel very Stephen King to me. And even though it says who wrote the book at the beginning of the movie, you guys know I didn't read that shit. I didn't notice it said, I wasn't paying attention to that. So like the first time I saw this movie, because I really put it off for a long time because it just sounded like not my bag. And when I finally did see it for the first time, I thought this is not a Stephen King adaptation. And it's not, you know, um, it is an adaptation, but it's not of a Stephen King book. So when you first suggested this double feature, I thought, oh, yeah, Romero did two King things. And only when it started, I went, oh, right, this isn't a King thing. What am I thinking? And then I reminded myself that it was the fucking skeleton crew confusion, though they don't look exactly alike. They're similar enough that when I was like 10, it makes sense that I got the. Yes, I remember the the double day edition of skeleton crew had the. um. I don't know if you guys are familiar with like back in like the mid to late nineties, um, double day did these, um, editions of Stephen King books. They had these really iconic covers with these, the really like stark font. And then mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. All, all the images were like, um, like monkey shines was just this, like, like the toy monkey with the symbols and like, you mean skeleton crew, skeleton crew. Yeah. <laughs> I, there I did it. Uh-huh. Um, it was the monkey in like this, like if I remember I'm, in my head, it's like just like neon, neon purple and pink and red. Um, but they all like they all that, that I remember seeing the cover of Skeleton Crew and thinking it was about a monkey. And you know what's crazy is like you know nowadays it's like when I think of Skeleton Crew, I think of two short stories i think of the mist and i think right. of um the raft both of which you know been made into the raft was in creep show too and the mist was the frank darabont film the monkey the short story the monkey put a gun to my head i couldn't tell you what that fucking short story was about 
I don't even think I was told by someone when I brought this up about my confusion as a kid. They said it wasn't even like a, a horror story. No, it's that, not even that good. Like, yeah. I, I remember reading it like there are so many. See, the problem is I always get like the skeleton crew and um, Night Shift mixed up. But I think Night Shift, another um, iconic cover. I'm thinking of the one with the hand and the, yep, the, the, yep. that shit haunted me long before I read the book. We had a copy and it was before I started reading Stephen King's stuff. And I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is, but this is this is nightmare fuel right here, you know? And it's funny because I think um I think a book that meant more to me as a King reader was it. Yeah. But for whatever reason, that cover meant nothing to me. It had it made no impact on me, that original it cover. It just was whatever. It didn't whatever. It didn't mean anything to me. But the cover of that night shift uh collection of short stories, I was like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. Like it really upset me. Yeah, Night Shift had a hand the uh, the boogeyman and the night shift was one that always like fucked with me. Yes. Yes. Um, and then, but the, the whole, the point of all this is that even though that monkey has been like linked, like inextricably tied in to the perception of skeleton crew, it's a very unremarkable. Yeah. Short story. Like it's, it's not even like mid level King, like the dark half. It's just like bottom of the barrel, like, like dream catcher King. This will be this will be interesting because my memories of the book, which I haven't read in a long time, of the dark half, are very positive. So I'm not, be, I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying like the dark half. It's ha not one of your favorites. We'll get there. Like okay. Okay. yeah, yeah. Um, but before we do, we would like to thank our sponsors, including but not limited to the. Now I had a positive. Let me let me start. Let, let me start that over. I had as positive of an interaction with Chris Reject as one can possibly have last okay. night okay. in that I ran into him at a restaurant and it didn't end with me getting escorted out of the restaurant in handcuffs. Pretty good. Pretty good. Trying to kill him. So that I had a good time with Chris. Um, so I'm going to. You know what? Gonna, I'll be anti-Chris then. I thank sent, you. I sent Chris a care package. He hasn't sent me a thank you yet, which normally I wouldn't really care because he's a forgetful gentleman. But uh, but instead, he texted me a harassing thing about the band Turnstile. And he harassed me about the band Turnstile for almost an hour because he thought it was really funny. And I was trying to no sell him, but it didn't really it didn't really go over. And the way he did this, too, there's a guy on TikTok who does reggae covers of stuff. And if you watch his reggae covers, you'll figure out in two seconds this man is a troll. He doesn't actually think any of this is good. And what's more, long before he did a turnstile cover, he covered like death metal bands. You know what I mean? Like he's done mm. more extreme versions. So he did a cover of Holiday and Chris said it to me like, look, turnstile's ruining all music because of this guy. And I was like, all right, come on, buddy. So as far as I'm concerned, Chris Reject is a jerk. But guess what? I still use LVAC for all of my screen printing needs. And so should you. You exactly. Should to, you should go to xlvacx.com, email Chris. And my one joy is that while he needs customers, he needs you to come and give him money for the products that he will expertly print for you. He doesn't want them because he has this weird thing where he doesn't actually want success. So the more of you who go there and get stuff printed, the more unhappy he will be. And that makes me very happy. Because what we need in this world is a less happy Chris reject. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Oh, we kind of skipped. Sorry about that. We also, of course, want to thank all of our uh, patrons over at oh, yeah, I see, I see. patreon.com. You, we, we like you guys. Yeah. Hey, I sent some shirts out. If you got your shirt, please let me know that you got it. Uh, also, if you would like a shirt and you haven't gotten one yet, let me know. Uh, and then above all of that, we're trying to do more uh, Patreon content. Always give us your feedback. Let us know if you like it, if you want something different. Uh, and tell a friend to check it out. I, I hope you will. So that's it. That's it for Patreon. Thank you. We love you. We also like to thank Essex Coffee Roasters. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you can you can check out <laughs> www.xlvacx.com. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you head to Essex Coffee Ro- Essex Coffee Roasters.com, you can order coffee, tea, uh, apparel. Uh, and when you order the coffee, uh, Aaron Dahlbeck, who you might know from bands such as Bane and Be Well, he'll uh, roast your coffee to order so it's fresh. And on your way out, you're going to enter the code C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X, that's Cinepunks, and you're going to get 10% off your order. And who else? Finally. Oh, Finally. right. We're going to thank our man Sharky over Mechanical Shark Media. Sharky is, he wants his ad to be very short, so this is what I'm going to say. If you have a project that you would like media help with, including all manner of media, head over to mechanicalsharkmedia.com. Sharky would like to discuss that project with you and see if he can help. He wants to uh, to be a part of that process. That's it. He doesn't want us to say anything else, so we'll, we'll right. leave it at that. I don't know okay. why. He's very into it, so we'll, we'll leave it at that. And don't you have a t-shirt company you'd like to hype? That's right. I've been meaning to do this. I keep forgetting on all of my podcasts to say, hey, head on over to roughcutfanclub.com. We are just wrapping up <clears throat> our French New Wave re-release, uh, but we should have um, the extras of our Possession and Demons uh, drop. Uh, probably both Demons designs will be up on the site, uh, and that should be within the next like couple weeks uh, from when you hear this show. So head on over to roughcutfanclub.com. We also have some new uh, stuff coming out and some of our older designs, like some of the Mandy designs and stuff have been put on sale. So uh, head over to the site, even if you've been before, check it out. Uh, also follow us on the various socials. Um, and we would, we would love to hear from you and hopefully you'll order something and then we'll send it to you. And uh, you'll know that I packed it with love. Mm. I also feel somewhat compelled to give a shout out to Chris Rejects T-shirt company. Oh yeah, I, Dry Rot's pretty cool. Here's the thing, you know, I I they do more wrestling stuff than I want, but uh, but they do cool movie stuff. They do some cool band stuff. I I was too broke to order that Fugazi shirt that they had, but that <laughs> shit was sick. So yeah, Dry Rot. I, I, now is that do they have their own site, Justin? Do you know or are they? Uh, the, I think it's just a. I think it's just at um merch bin. Yeah, the merch bin. You can follow them on Instagram. I think it's dry underscore rot with two t's um i post about them if you follow me on there at repairman x jack or you follow the harp is 666 on instagram we post pretty regularly about their the stuff they have out um i was actually just hand delivered their aliens t-shirt last night um while i while i think i'm not sure if i was on a double date or not that's up to i don't know I'll never, I'll probably never know, but that's where I ran into Chris and his lovely girlfriend last night at the bar. And Chris came in and gave me this amazing t-shirt that I was like falling over. Um, but yeah, I posted that on the gram as well. So yeah, dry rot t-shirts, they don't really do much to compete with rough cut. So it's kind of fine. You know, they do like, I mean, no, it's they, they do like 
they do, you know, there's no, there's no real intersectionality right there. No, no, no. And we love Chris. We're glad that he's doing that. Uh, I, they have a Sonic youth shirt right now that I think is really cool. So, uh, you know, I might, I might order that. We'll see. I think personally, I think Chris should just be sending me these shirts for free, but you know, I agree. I know know that's too much. That's that's asking too much. Yeah. So now comes, comes the time in the podcast when I am attempting to, um, study for my law degree, but I've been rendered quadriplegic by a truck. And I think to myself, if only I had a monkey to help me out with my various, you know, everyday going abouts. And as I'm turning the page with my mouth thing, this fucking parakeet is heckling me. And I'm so, I'm just, I'm angry at the parakeet. I'm angry at life. And I look over in the corner where Liam, my nurse, Liam's my nurse. He takes care of me. Yeah, is laughing his fucking ass off at me for struggling with this parakeet. And right before I think, if only I had a monkey to murder this parakeet and put it in one of Liam's shoes. I lay an olive branch across this bridge, this feathery bridge. And I say, Liam, what have you done involving Har recently? Uh, Of all the weird sort of analogies you've come up with, this is. Probably my least favorite. I think. It's the best one. I, I'm going to say it's the best one. Um, So I haven't done a lot horror-wise. Um, I just haven't been able to catch up on stuff. But there are a couple things we can talk about. The first one um, is uh, I watched, like a lot of people, the season finale of a little show called The Last of Us. Heartbreaking. Yeah, it was... It's a, it, it, I think we got to admit this show has been pretty fucking great. Just, just amazing stuff. I don't know. Just if you feel the same. Um, yeah. I mean, I had high expectations for it. And to say it has gone above and beyond those expectations would be an understatement. I honestly, like I'm saying this without like a trace of humor. Like I honestly did not expect this show to be as moving as, as, as I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, right? Is that, um, to me, they really nailed a lot of the emotional drama of the story, which is maybe not what I expected. I think maybe I expected it to be more like action packed, you know, which maybe was a downer for some people. But to me, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I can't wait for season two. Like, you know, like I, I think it was pretty great. Uh, now, I got to tell you guys, for a week, I've been harassing Justin. Because I kept telling them that we were going to have a big argument about the last episode. On we this were never going to have an argument. You can't argue with me. I mean, first I of just, all, I can argue. With I you. totally just roll over dead. I just. No, that is true. That is true, actually. But um, but I was really just kidding because the, the real only difference here. So Justin made a big post about, um, you know, the, one of the discussions people have had since the game came out was how justified Joel is. Right. Uh, in his decisions and you know this is spoiler material so uh uh if you want to be spoiler free i'd say fast forward by like you know three or four minutes we're not going to spend a lot of time on this yeah uh but uh but you know joel makes a decision and you know justin made a very i i think actually very sort of insightful point about the ending and why it was justified and uh 
and, you know, made a sort of uh, Kantian versus utilitarian argument. And, you know, just to mess with him, I was like, yeah, bullshit, whatever, whatever. But that's not really how I feel, only because um, I think at a basic level, Justin, though I don't really think it's Kantian, I think that part of your argument is off. But uh, I do think you're right. And I think most people who really think about it would, would think that you're right. Because of a number of reasons, uh, the most obvious being, um, you know, Ellie didn't actually wasn't actually given the choice. Yeah, she was lied to and subjected to this thing. So there's any 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 move like this that in my mind that involves misleading someone to get something from them that that they don't have a choice then in you're already in iffy territory. The the thing I wanted to give you shit about because your your thing didn't really address it. It's just that the the writers of the show, and I think of the game, they don't want to make it so easy for you. So they no. want to they want to make it clear that while Joel is technically doing the right thing because they shouldn't, the Fireflies a shouldn't do this to Ellie and b a lot of people pointed this out, and I don't think it's insignificant to point out the Fireflies so far have been pretty shitty at everything they do. So yeah. the idea that they're going to uh, make a vaccine and get it out to everybody is seems pretty. It's a pretty big jump, pretty pretty big jump to sacrifice someone's life for. But what the showrunners want you to realize is that in the moment, Joel isn't thinking about the rightness or wrongness of his well, actions. And let me let me let me sort of add a coda to what I I should have been my Instagram post. I should have been clearer about. It's not so much that I think Joel did the right thing, because he didn't. I mean, he killed a bunch of people. Um, he lied to Ellie. It, whatever. It's more that I saw a lot of people who it's more that I don't think what the Fireflies was doing was was right. You know, yeah, I mean, you can let someone choose that. Right? You can. I, I also. Yeah. It, I mean, it also comes down to I, I, I don't think it's 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 almost like. I don't think the the, the, the end goal of um, getting a vaccine to this broken world, maybe, you know, uh, I don't think that justifies the killing of a child. I, I you know, I, and I, 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 you know, maybe, I don't know. Like I saw a lot of people say like, um, I definitely do think it justifies killing a child, just not my child. And I saw a, a lot of people being like, I totally get that. That's that's shitty to say, but like, I think that what Joel did was wrong to stop them, but I also would have done the same thing if it was my child. So, well, I mean, that actually takes me down a whole other path that we've talked about before, which is, I think this show actually also deals with, but remember when, um, it comes at night came out. Remember that? Yes. Yeah. And one of the things I found so compelling about it comes at night is that, um, I think that movie fully embraces a fact that we don't talk about enough, which is that, being a parent will inevitably lead you to be in some sense, selfish and self-interested yeah. to, to the extent that by selfish, what I mean is interested towards your child because that's your job. That's, that's what you're there for. And so what society has to do is not force parents to suddenly become sacrificial of their children, but rather to create an environment where parents aren't competing with each other for the lives and safety of their children. That like the, the goal is not to get parents who are disinterested in the well-being of their children, which honestly, I see people argue for that who 
mostly aren't parents all the time that what's a right world is one in which parents are just okay with whatever happens to their kid. That's not real. That's not going to ever be real. You can't argue. And this is sort of one of my issues sometimes with Kantian ethics. You can't argue an ethics that we all know is physically fucking impossible. If it's not possible, it's not possible. You have to deal with what is possible. And what is possible is to create a society in which we give equal opportunities, equal rights, uh, even equal resources to children so that parents don't feel the need to destroy other children for the good of their own child. And this is my thing when people get too into Joel being heroic. The show is really clear that even though this is the right decision, Joel would do anything. Let's say it was just a child and it was like, oh, you can have Ellie back if you murder this innocent, even he younger child. It. Joel would kill that child. Like, it, the, in the, fact, in fact, I don't, you haven't played the game, have you? No. Um, in the game, when Ellie is being like harassed by that guy, the fucking creepy cult leader guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what Joel is doing in the game at that point? No idea. Murdering the rest of the village. I do like that they, I mean, well, we'll get into that. Suffice it to say, I like this version of Joel, both because he's slightly less murderous, but also because he's slightly less superpowered, right? The Joel in the game seems invincible to some extent, which I'm sure adds the gameplay, but like, you know, Pedro Pascal's Joel is like, eh, he could fuck up at any moment. Like you're watching the show go and like, Hey man, you're pretty good at this, but also you're not Superman. So like, let's not, let's not push it too hard, buddy. Yeah. Um, anyways, all, all I want to say is that all I wanted to say is like the, what makes the show good to me is that this is a hard decision. And so while I think that ultimately it will, it would have been the wrong decision to sacrifice Ellie. I think when people pretend that that is a clear thing that they are ignoring what the show is trying to do, which is show you how similar Joel is to every other bad guy in the whole show. Every person we've seen who is awful is motivated by something that they think is love or good or whatever. And whether that's, real love or that's love for their sense of power or their wound left over by love destroyed, whatever it is, they are enacting violence because of an effect love had in their life. And so then this is the one moment where Joel is really pushing that because while he is saving Ellie, it's not clear that um, he is motivated by what's right. And that becomes clear at the end when he does lie to her because he he's not rational enough to realize he's literally sacrificing the thing he just murdered people for because yeah. he's poisoning his relationship, which is why all of these people are dead. They are dead for that. And um, I also was harassing you because you were, you were talking about killing being wrong. And I'm like, well, I mean, Joel just killed a bunch of people too. So I think, that's the wrong. Killing, I think the and killing I, thing here is kind of, kind of squishy on that. On I that. did say, and I, but I, I did say that his, what what he like the things he did like him killing people and him lying to Ellie, those were not permissible. You know that 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 was there was there that those were not um. What's the word I'm looking for? Um. For lack of a better phrase, I'll say justified. It was still wrong sure, for him to do sure. that, and I think people are getting a little too caught up in the badassery of the moment to be like, um. You know, it, okay, so I'll put it this way. 
friend of the podcast, John DeMarkey, who I watch these shows with, you know, has played the games. He had said he was uncomfortable with that scene because there came a point when it's when it was when it was when it was murder. And that's essentially what that was. Joel was killing people who were surrendering. And it's like there's there's really there's really no excuse for that. I I don't know. Um, I mean, I think he does have an excuse. It's just not enough. And that and that's a, the the brilliance of the show to me. Like, that's part of the thing we should acknowledge is that the show is trying to complicate this for you. The show is trying to make it hard because that's what's interesting. Right. It's not interesting if, oh, all of these people are monsters and every single one of them, no matter what, deserves death. And Joel is just a pure hero who's doing his heroic work. That's not as much fun. I, I mean, I, I'm sure there's an audience somewhere for that. But for me, that is not what makes the show interesting. It's the complications that make the show interesting. You know what I mean? And, and that, that, you know, that the, anyways, the only thing I was also going to give you crap about is because I, I think you're overrating Kantian ethics and I, I don't want to waste everyone's time with that. But the problem with utilitarianism is not that it's not universal. It's that it's always deployed in a way that makes the whole thing seem false. Right. So it, it's always, the group that is the the few that can be sacrificed for the many is always some group that we have some other reason not to like, or some other reason yes. to whatever, because in the end, um, if, if you don't, uh, the question of what, it, what sorts of sacrifices is a community needed to make in order to have the best possible world, the question becomes, what are we willing to sacrifice? And so the, 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 I think the problem I have is that when you, let's say we look at, you know, one of the forms of government that we both would find abhorrent, which would be fascism. Fascism is often oscillating between Kantianism and utilitarianism, because while they are willing to sacrifice the few for the many, there are many ultimate values that they would defend with uh, very Kantian ideas that they are unwilling to sacrifice uh, because they're universal things and they don't care what the result is. It's just the right thing. So I think that utilitarianism, it, it falls short because it um, is always deployed to protect yourself or someone like yourself. And it, it's not really pragmatic, which is really the thing, which is that uh, context and situations change and you have to adjust to those situations. Kant doesn't allow for that. It, you know, there's one ethics from the beginning of time and you just make sure you understand the perfect ethics and then you apply it in every situation. And I just don't think that's real. I think that's where Kantianism falls apart, but it doesn't mean that then you choose utilitarianism because i think utilitarianism is also not real um and often the solution is not to sacrifice the needs of the few because the people who need to sacrifice are often those often aren't needs right like the the version of utilitarianism that we that i am leaning towards socialism is still a you know it comes from a kind of utilitarian thinking it's just it's the realization that those things that those people consider needs their billions of dollars are not actually needs at all. So like they need to let that shit fucking go. And, and, and the rest of us need to have the ability to have access to some of those resources, you know? Uh, so that, that's sort of, but I just think the idea that there's one universal ethic is a problem. And, um, um, and I, and I think that the other thing with that, I have a problem with, with Kant is that he wants to completely ignore results and on one hand, I think you do have to ignore results because you don't know what the results are. However, sometimes the results are bad. 
and you need no, to it, deal with that reality. It, it's it, it's, it, it, it's the whole idea of like, okay, I'm admittedly somewhat of a Kant fanboy. If you haven't picked that up, I really, really, really don't like utilitarianism. Which, as someone who is, you know, been a semi-intellectual vegan for coming up on twenty years, that's gotten me gotten me into some like calling prickly conversations. Sure. Yeah. You know about how I I I I don't like Peter Singer. I think I I think utilitarian bioethics and all that shit is like vastly overrated. Um, but I will give you, I will give you this. The biggest problem, yeah, the biggest problem with 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 Kant is like, you know, there's the famous thought experiment of like, um, if like a Jew comes to your house and you're living in like Dusseldorf in like 1939 or whatever. And you hide him there. Kant would say that you have to tell the truth when the Nazis showed up and were like, is there a Jewish person? Even though Kant would be like, it's definitely like, it's definitely abhorrent that it's going to lead to the death of this Jewish man. Lying is still wrong. I, I, I think that Kant kind of like half-assed it and was sort of like, well, you know, practically, practically, of course, of course you would lie, but lying is still wrong. And it kind of gets wrapped up in this like weird ethereal, um, uh, what's the word? I had a professor in college who despised Immanuel Kant and he used to, what, what was the fucking phrase he used? <sighs> like a fantasy land. Right. Yes. Well, and that's, I mean, I would say this is the problem for me with ethics as a fucking discipline in the first place is that none of us have any of these hypothetical, you know what I mean? Like, most people aren't given the sorts of hypotheticals that we are using in, in ethics discussions, you know, that, and often the, the um, ideologies that motivate the decisions in those real scenarios are not actually sufficiently deconstructed by the act of ethics that often ethics reinforces the very ideologies that let people fool themselves into thinking, you know, this is okay. Right. And and part of the issue, like that, the example that you give when we think about Nazi Germany, it's like really instructive to know how many people didn't fight back against the Nazis just because they wanted money. Like it was literally like resources were such a motivating factor for people. They never even stopped to ask the ethical questions. It never even they, they never got to a space where they could really like ask the bigger universal questions. It was just like. Oh, doing this will help me in the short term. So this is what I'm going to do. And it's really upsetting that so few people stop to go, oh, wait, is this a horrible crime against humanity? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have time for that. So anyways, we don't want to I don't want to like totally derail us in this direction. But it was funny. Like, guys, I like for days I was like, Justin, I'm going to give you so much shit on the podcast. And that's not really true. Uh, that being said, I hope people who uh, watch the show and maybe felt super strong one way or the other without really considering the other side. I think it's worth rewatching the episode. Cause I think the, I think the, the, the way the show is constructed, it's meant to make it hard for you. That doesn't mean yeah. you can't, you can't make a decision, but the point of the writing is to complicate it, to make it so that you're put in a place where you feel how hard this is. And that's going to be important for next season. Y'all, if you go into next season thinking, Oh, I'm sure Ellie's fine now. She's not going to be fine, y'all. Like, that's not how it's going to work out. So, you know, I, I just think it's worth thinking about that a little bit. But also, I just appreciate a show like that that, like, 
encourages these kinds of discussions and and took those narrative beats seriously and didn't try to give us something easy because they could have gone with something easy. That wouldn't have been the spirit of the game, but it, it that sort of editing is the kind of thing that shows often do when they're adapting something because it's it's easier to do it that way. Um, that's about it for me. Horror stuff. The only thing I was I was going to mention. It's it's kind of hard because it involves demons and monsters and witches, but it's kind of a kid's thing. And uh, he, he, here's something I, I've, I've found confusing quite a few times, Justin, which is uh, I mostly don't like things that Disney does, which I know that's, you know, there are people who feel that way about uh, that's easy for them. Then there are other people who like love Disney. But, you know, I'm mostly like not stoked on Disney you know, there's a couple of movies here and there, but a lot of times I'm kind of mad on it and I'll watch the stuff with Maeve, but it doesn't, it doesn't really compel me. And the weird thing is how often that doesn't hold true for some of the strange shows that make it to the Disney channel. So the most obvious is gravity falls, right? Like a lot of yes. people know gravity. That's falls like is the, great. that's like the, the gold standard of like weird kid shows that like, why is this so good? Basically. Yes. Uh, they've done other ones. There's one uh, that I think it's called like Princess Poppy or Princess something, Princess Star. Anyways, this, uh, it's another weird character one. It has some of the same people who are involved in Gravity Falls. Um, it's it's you know uh, a young woman is uh, uh, exiled from another dimension, and now she has to like get to know the human world. And then her human friends travel with her to other dimensions and just goofy and fun. And then the one we've been watching lately is called the owl house. And uh, I got to tell you, man, owl house is fucking great. It's so goddamn good. And the guy from gravity falls, the creator who does some of the weird voices, you know, he did the voice of the pyramid guy at the end of gravity falls. He does some of the voices on owl house and uh, owl house is like, it's fun. It's very young adult. It's got uh, queer characters and it's very much about like learning to navigate relationships and emotions. And I'm so sucked into it. And what's crazy is it's occasionally a bit scary in a way that I was not expecting. Uh, never so much that we have to turn it off, but a couple of times Maeve's like, ah, and she looks at us to like, make sure that we don't care. But I've I've a couple times been on the edge of my seat, like, no, you're right, baby, this is scary. <laughs> oh, I um, go ahead. I have I have something about a, a kids movie I watched recently that I'll talk about when you're done. That oh, is it the Puss in Boots movie that oh, is actually frightening? Yes, I saw it in the theaters with Maeve. Yeah, yeah. So let me just finish up. If if you're yeah. someone who does like kids stuff, especially if you liked Gravity Falls, Owl House is not quite as to me roll around funny i think gravity falls really was fucking hilarious sometimes our house isn't quite as funny but it is it gets a lot of those emotional notes and uh interesting subplot that ha you know or not subplot but like overarching themes you know in that was going on in gravity falls that i feel like gravity falls never really got to fully explore because the it was so short you know i can't recommend our house enough and i don't know why some of these shows are so good at this because so many other Disney properties are just light trash. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's so weird that it's only a few times, but occasionally they really, Oh, and uh, there's another one. There's four of them. There's another one called amphibia. I think is the name of it. And again, girl lost in another dimension adventures with frog people. 
same thing. Uh, and, and Amphibia is even a little more funny. Owl House is a little more serious. So anyways, I recommend all those weird shows. If you have Disney Plus, check them out, especially if you have kids. But keep in mind, Owl House has a couple moments that are actually kind of scary. So you might want to make sure your kid is a, is a teeny bit older. You know, uh, Maeve is six. She's okay with it. But I, I wouldn't go below six if I were you, you know. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Justin. Okay, so horror movies I've watched, and I will take, I will freely admit I was so fucking wrong for bashing this movie when the trailer came out. Fucking hated it. You know what I'm going to say? I watched Megan with a three, and. Wait, real quick. The director's cut or the theatrical? Theatrical cut. Okay. All right. So tell me about Mithrigan. Holy fuck. I knew you'd like it, man. I It's funny because I don't even think I liked it as much as you did. And I was trying to tell you when we talked about it on the show and you just didn't want to hear me, man. You didn't want to hear what I was telling you. I was in the wrong for that. I freely admit that. I, I you know, again, talking to a friend of the podcast, John DeMarkey, I was like raving about this. And he was like, I don't know, man, like you were like really harsh in that trailer. And I was like, and I was wrong for that because like, the, okay, this, the, the moment in this movie when I realized how far, how mistaken i was was that famous tiktok dance scene that she's fucking doing the dance to that was done to the song to walk the night by the scat brothers yep which i have never heard that song played if i myself wasn't playing it i don't think i've ever seen it in a property for sure i have never seen in a property when I realized that they were doing that, I was literally, I was like, oh my fucking God. Like, they put the Scat Brothers. And for those of you unfamiliar with the Scat Brothers, imagine the village people, but darker, way gayer, and way more explicit about how they like to fuck. Oh, yeah, for sure. But just as sketchy. Um, yeah, no, it was, I mean, and then they had the fucking, the Martika toy soldiers, the little piano. Like, oh my God, there was so much I love about this movie. Um, but like, I mean, the, the one of the things that I, I, I think that the trailer didn't really sell was how much this movie deals not with not just with grief at losing family members, um, but also what it's like to be a, a child free adult who was suddenly um, thrust into the situation where they they have responsibility as a parent. Yep. And. There were elements that I that that kind of reminded me of like, um, like especially the scenes when they're like talking about how like Megan is like learning and all this shit. Like, there's a lot philosophically to dive into about like you could you could argue like about like personhood and um, like the morality of AI and I don't know. There was just so much going on in this movie, and it it was like a lot smarter than I think it presented itself and that it's being given credit for like, it's unfortunate that people are just writing this movie off as, you know, zoomer TikTok bullshit. When in reality, it's like, no, this is actually like, um, I mean, you could also argue that like, it's a, it's a commentary upon like obsession and like love gone wrong where like Megan is obsessed with this little girl and it's, the love she has for her is, is what turns it's like there's love with no parameters becomes something like horrifying and evil mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but that that love comes from the fact that um 
her guardian, you know, her aunt is so incapable of realizing what's expected. She, yes. she really sees it as just another task on yep. her to-do list. Right. Yep. Uh, I have two thoughts about this. One is this is so not a zoomer movie. Like this is a marketing team who knew how to use TikTok to get the yes. word out about the movie. And so judging it based on that seems weird to me, especially because the moment they used to go viral is a very fun moment in the movie. It's not like they lied about the movie. That no. part of the movie fucking rules. The second thing is I'm so goddamn tired of Zoomer TikTok being a derogatory term. Everyone, you sound old and washed. When you talk like this, I wish for you to die. Like, I'm like, okay, well then leave the planet because these kids that you hate so much are the future and we might as well just burn it to the ground now if you feel this much disdain for them. It really fucking bums me out. And it's not that different for some of these folks because I hear this from people in their fucking 30s and I'm like, hey, remember when I was in my 30s and we were all talking like this about you because you're fucking millennial? Like, get it together. Like, I, the, the way that the, 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 the fucking millennials, especially mid-tier millennials, have turned on younger kids the way that they were so hurt that all the older people were turning on them. It's such a goddamn, this is like the perfect, like bully, the bully to become the bullies situation that I find it fucking disgusting. Now, don't get me wrong. You don't have to like shit. I, 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 I will never understand some of the popular music. I certainly don't understand, you know, a lot of the modern reality TV, I'm not telling you to like the shit that's meant for kids, but like the level of disdain for anyone under 30 is just so fucking bitter and and filled with vitriol that it, it really fucking bums me out. And I'm just like not into it. Like I just think that it's really fucking gross. So let it go. You know, it's yeah. if you want to comment that people's pants are too big, that's fine. That's an objective statement. I think your pants are too big. But you can't use the size of the pants to write off a whole goddamn generation. It just seems unfair to me because, you know, when I was a kid, my pants were big. All right. And I'm yeah. fine. They, I'm they, called you, they called you Janko Liam. I mean, I couldn't afford Jenkos. I wore Menace, but you know what I'm saying? I Same had big thing. pants on. Yeah. <laughs> Jenkos um, were fucking expensive, man. We don't talk about that. How much? They yeah, no, we absolutely. We absolutely. That's why uh, all the kids who were Jenkos in my school were all the kids who liked corn, but lived on College Hill, which you know about. Oh, yeah. I know all about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's another movie I watched. I got a screener for. I'm not, I can't. I don't want to say it because I don't think I'm. I don't think we, this counts as like this. This counts as like a critical podcast, I guess. So just to be safe, I'm not going to talk about it. But I will have a review up for it on Cinebunks, you know, at the end of the month. It was I liked it. Um, and I want to talk about Puss in Boots: The Last Wish. <laughs> so you know, it, let me just start off saying, if you haven't seen this movie because you thought Puss in Boots, who the fuck cares? You should see it. It's pretty good. Yeah. It was recommended to me by a friend of the podcast, Carly of the Final Girls podcast, because she had watched it. Um, oh, and side note, uh, follow me, Repairman X Jack on Instagram. Uh, Carly's dog is in need of veterinary care. Carly started a, go started a GoFundMe. Um, it's, her dog has substantial veterinarian bills. She could really use some help. Um, I'll put it in the show notes. If you can, please do. Um, she'd recommended this because... Uh, it deals a lot with the concept of like anxiety and, and, and panic attacks and like a fear of death and a fear that your time has come and gone. And uh, that 
made her think of me because that's me in a nutshell right there um i have i don't care about i'm not a big animated movie person i've never seen any of the other puss in boots movies i think i saw the first shrek movie i watched this movie to be like okay you know carly i trust her judgment i'm you know i'm touched she thought of me i'll watch this movie and by god in heaven liam i was this movie again i don't like it wasn't even like good for like a kid's movie it was just like so fucking powerful and moving in so many ways like i don't want to spoil anything but like the scene at the end with like the if they're all talking about their wishes and they're all talking about what they want like i was i was like fucking in tears when like the the the, the three bears and goldilocks and then like um you know kitty softball she just wants someone she can trust and she had it all along and um, but f- because this is a horror podcast, let's talk about some of the scarier elements of this movie, which there were several. Um, visually, the scene at the end when the wolf confronts Puss. Unbelievable. Fucking terrifying. I mean, I legitimately thought I had made a mistake bringing Maeve to the movie. Yes. Like, I really was like, and and what's funny is uh, we had, she had a sleepover and we suggested to watch Puss in Boots with her not cousins, a good idea. And she was like, no, that movie's too scary. I don't want to watch it again. Yeah. Like the way it's set up when the wolf is like explaining who he is yep. and then it's like, okay, yeah, cool. He's that. And then he's just like, and I don't mean, and this is a quote from the movie and I don't mean poetically. I don't mean metaphorically. I don't mean figuratively. It just drives it home who he actually is. Like, holy shit, that was so fucking. Oh god, it was so fucking scary, dude. Like, I was like, you like, oh my god. Like, I wish I could have been in the theater opening night with a bunch of parents who were just like, oh my god. Um, and then the other scene that got me was the scene when uh, Perito, the little the little Chihuahua who thinks he acts like a cat, when he's explaining where he got his sock from. And he tells us, you know, his family tried to drown him in it. Like, again, I wish I could have been in the theaters when that, because that's something that probably went over kids' heads. You know, like it probably was like, eh, you know, they don't, they're not very like explicit about it. And, but then like the scene where it just cuts back to Puss in Boots and like Kitty Softballs and they're both like aghast. I'm sure there were like, Every parent in the theater opening night that took their kid to see that, that was their expression. Like, are you fucking serious right now? Like, this is what we're talking about? Like, they tried to fucking drown you? And you wear the sock they tried to drown you in as a shirt? Like, oh my god. It is. I mean, again, this is another example of I sometimes, not always, but sometimes after I see something, I get really excited. And I tell people about it. And I'm like, hey guys, this is really great. It's really great. It's really great. And I think sometimes people think I'm being a goof, you know, because yeah. like, come on, the puss and the third Puss and Butts movie. But like this has become a thing online. Like other people, famous people have been like, hey, you guys see this fucking movie? Why is it so good? And that's the that's the thing, right? I have also uh, uh not uh, I like animated movies a bit more than you do, but I, you know, I haven't gone out of my way to see the Puss and Boots things, but I've seen parts of it when Maeve was watching it. I don't think the other Puss in Boots movies are this good. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, Puss in Boots, it's a really fucking great property. I think just they randomly were like, we we got money for a third movie. Let's just make it fucking awesome. And yeah. it's, to me, beyond 
and I don't even mind the Shrek movies. This is beyond any of the fucking Shrek movies. Like, this is a whole other level to me. And, you know, I get that, like, not everybody wants to give the third movie in a kid series a chance. But if you have the time and you're interested in animation, it's not just that the writing and the performing is amazing, which it is. The animation's also sick. It's clearly, I mean, for those of you who've seen it, they're clearly ripping off uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, right? Yeah. Like it's that style. But I don't care. I mean, this is this is the time, right? Like, that whole innovation in animation is so new. Rip it off now while you can before it becomes the standard, you know? Yep. Do, do your version of it now. And it's not exactly the same. It's just clearly inspired by that style. And it does it very well. So it's, like, not just an entertaining movie it's really amazing to look at too. I don't know. I was really impressed by it. I mean, I don't know that like if you are utterly offended at the idea of a kid's movie, this is going to win you over per se. But I think if, if you can handle anything like a kid's movie and, and, and again, I'm saying like an older kid's movie because Maeve at six, that was too young. This is definitely a movie for like, in my mind, 12 and up, really 11 yep. and up, maybe because this is a serious movie, even as it's fucking hilarious. It's also really funny, which it's I, so I maybe, fucking funny. maybe I don't I don't know if we're making clear here. It's scary at parts. It is very uh, it's got lots of adventure at parts, but it's fucking hilarious. And that was the thing that took me the most aback beyond the quality of the animation was how it was actually funny and not like funny for kids. Funny. The scene at the end when yeah. like the three bears are insulting each other. Yeah. And they're just like, yeah, they're like British. And they're just like, oh, you're just like a scattywag. And Prito's like, oh, I got one. And they just bleep out what he's saying. I was fucking losing my mind laughing at that. Yeah. That was so fucking well done. Like, oh, my God. And uh, just it's just a good movie. It just made me feel really good. I agree. Yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the 1988 American psychological horror film. Monkey shine. I did it again. Monkey shines. An experiment in fear. A man trapped by his own body. To Alan, to the start of his new life. So you train monkeys exclusively for quadriplegics? How about if I were to donate a monkey? She hasn't been exposed to anything weird in the lab. No. An animal trained to follow commands. How am I supposed to take care of it, Jeff? The idea is that it's going to take care of you. She's unbelievable. She's like a miniature person. <laughs> Get rid of that bird or so help me. One with the mind for revenge. I've been so full of anger. I've had the most horrible thoughts lately. I've made up a formulation based on human memory cells. I've been injecting one of my monkeys. I don't like this change in you, Alan. The other with the instinct to kill. What the hell are you doing to her? Ellen is getting out of the house, and I'm getting out with her. You do know that that's impossible. Man is the only animal capable of murder. She did it for me. Did it because I wanted it done. Stop it! From the director of Night of the Living Dead, George A. Romero, the master of terror and suspense. And 
not gonna hurt me. I'm part of you. Monkey shines on you into terror. And we are back to talk about George Romero's Monkey Shines. Now, fun fact about this movie. Um, I remember seeing the trailer for this movie when I was a little kid and being terrified of it. Because the trailer was just sort of vague. But the poster, coupled with the trailer, scared the living shit out of me. I was like, I don't want to see... Because in my head, I'm like, that monkey gets symbols at one point and turns into a toy and kills that guy. That's what this movie's about, right? It's not that what the movie's about at all. But, like, you're a kid and you think weird shit. Like, I didn't watch this movie until I was, like, a teenager because I was so scared of it as a little kid. Um, and you know, I also didn't realize it was, like, a George Romero film until later on either. But, like... Sure, yeah. Um... I don't know. I, I like. I mean, I, I mean, I didn't. I didn't watch it till I was a full on adult. It was at a horathon, and yeah. it came on, and I was like, uh, "This fucking thing!" But I had never really given it a chance, so I just thought, "I'm at horathon. It's on. I'll watch it. It's it's a Romero movie, which I didn't know ahead of time." And uh, I gotta say, Justin, I really like this movie. I think yeah. this is really well done. I want to say before we get too much into the discussion, I don't think we're gonna get into the weeds here on. If how this movie treats the issues of, uh, you know, being paralyzed and the rights of people and all that kind of stuff, I don't know that the movie uh, to me, this just feels like a narrative tool to set up the monkey and the super smart monkey. And I have no idea if people watch this movie and they go, oh, man, this is classic 80s offensive portrayal of people who are. Differently able. That's that. That might be a, a way that people see this movie. I have no idea, Justin. So I just want to out. If you're looking for us to have like a super informed and political take on the ways that this movie does not empower the you know uh, 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 paraplegic community or whatever uh, or quadriplegic community, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say. And so rather than pretend that I know one way or the other. I'm just going to name my ignorance up front. I'm sure so I, I, I'm know. sure it's out there. I'm sure there's like, I'm sure if you look into it, there, there has to be discussions on it. And I do think this movie, it, the part of it that feels like it's, it's real, even though they exaggerate it for the purpose of the movie, which sucks is the idea that, you know, for the most part, this guy just wants to feel like he's still alive, you know, yes. like, and he wants to feel like he's a full adult. And while, yes, he needs some assistance to live, that that doesn't make him uh, unable of making his own decisions. And so, like, that part of it all feels very real to me. Everything else, I don't know what to make. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I, we're probably going to talk more about the creepy monkey because the monkey's fucking creepy. Though. <laughs> I but uh, I just want to make clear, like, if if someone might be like, yeah, I listened to this thing and I was really disappointed with the you didn't bring up this and that issue with it, whatever. I'm just going to name a front that I, I don't. No. And I don't know that this movie honestly has enough of you said it's probably out there. It probably is out there somewhere, but the movie isn't well known enough. I think that like a ton of people are like, I'm going to write a piece about I'm, disability I, I mean, issues and monkey shots. Like, I don't know that it has that impact on the culture. I mean, I will say that it doesn't, it, it, it does a very good job of establishing um, and, and building upon our main character. Uh, what's his name? Alan. That the source of his, the source of his rage, which is what it is, the source of his rage towards the world is this kind of like, um, he has been rendered less than a child. He, he yes. has, he has a absolute lack of dignity. Um, 
His main companion is a nurse who fucking despises him. Yeah, um, it's just the worst. You know, he he he's lost his girlfriend to his doctor, played by Stanley Tucci, who somehow looks older than I do now, when he was 28 when this movie came out. Um, it does a really good job of showing, like, how much it fucking sucks becoming quadriplegic at the age of, like, you know, 20, 21 years old. Um, I will say, uh, one of my all-time, like, sleeper, you know, the most depressing films of all time for me is the Whose Life Is It Anyway? Uh, starring uh, Richard Dreyfus. Th this movie isn't as depressing as that because, again, it's a movie about a killer monkey, but um, it does a good job of establishing, like, the bleakness of this guy's situation. Well, and I think the it, it allows for this idea that the movie functions on more, which is that uh, even though he's not doing these things, he has these emotions, right? But yes. he is conditioned by society, right, to not act on these emotions. Uh, but the monkey has no such conditioning. No, the monkey the has monkey... no reason not to do whatever the fuck he's feeling. If he's mad at somebody, why uh, shouldn't she? It's a she. Yeah. No, I'm saying if he's mad at oh, somebody, oh, right, right, right. why shouldn't she go and act his, his anger on, you know, go be his hand of vengeance? Because you know that's I mean? her fucking boy. Right. And, 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 and it really, in a way, becomes about her maybe loving him and 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 uh it, and if that sounds uncomfortable it is at first it's not right because it's just like oh yeah she loves him like a pet would love anybody and then pretty quickly the movie's like no it's more than a pet it's more yeah. are you thinking of a pet it's more than that and that sort of complicates the movie even more in a way that i think is well handled because it's supposed to be gross and it is gross and 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 in, and in a way the uh the ways that Alan is made to feel power powerless is yes the treatment from his nurse and from his mother and from some other people just sort of the ways they interact with him um but in a way he's also made to feel powerless by the power the monkey gives him yes um, Ella is the name of the monkey mm -hmm. uh, the power that Ella gives him because she's responding to the thoughts he can't control. And mm -hmm. those thoughts are amplified by her presence. And granted, you could argue that maybe the the characterization of the monkey as like pure id is maybe unfair because I don't know how violent those particular kinds of monkeys it, it are. It felt kind of weird that they they made it a point to show how intelligent she was. And I'll be honest, if there's one thing that doesn't sit right with this movie, it really is the weird subplot about them like injecting the monkeys with like human brain tissue. Um, and I don't mean that from like an ethical viewpoint, like to me, that literally made no fucking sense. I think it would have been a far stronger. It would have been a much stronger film if it was just a quote unquote normal monkey that developed this fucking link and went crazy as opposed to like, has science gone too far with intelligent monkeys? I just I mean, my deal is it's that part of it felt very of an era. Like there's a point to which even though I didn't grow up with this movie watching it gives me a sense of nostalgia. One of those things is my man strapping himself with weights and running in short shorts. Like that whole beginning, I was like... That, his weird stretches. Uh, I was just like... <laughs> it couldn't have been more 80s if he like was doing coke as he did it, right? Like that Absolutely. Would be the only thing. That would have been more 80s, right? Uh, uh, so there's nostalgia there. But I think also the like obviously poorly thought out pseudoscience of the whole thing and the reality of like, um, there's a sense in the movie that it's not just science. Like 
science is cold and calculating like the guy's boss is who later is on news radio. That guy. I love that guy. Stephen um, Root. Yeah. He's, he's fucking the best. Great, yeah. He's the best. But, but his friend is that other part of science, which is like radical rock and roll. Like the dude's not just reckless. He's also punk rock, right? Like that has to be part of it is that in the eighties, all of our anxieties often got typified by this residual counterculture, which by the way, barely existed at that point. Yeah. But we, were, we were all worried that someone you knew had a weird hippie friend that was going to do something fucked up at some point and you were going to get caught in the blowback. And that's literally what happens here. The, the monkey is not really there to help Alan. It's to get this guy out, you know, uh, uh, so, some sort of breakthrough. Cause he's trying to like save his, his career, you know? Yeah. And so like, I think that aspect of the movie is important because uh, it, it, it allows us to, and granted, I don't think this whole idea of training these um, animals to help people that that became a real thing. I think that went away eventually as like, this is a bad idea, but like, I'm sure at the time they didn't want it to be just, Oh, if you have a monkey in your house, he's going to turn murderous. They needed this science angle because a lot of these monkeys they were using were monkeys who were trained to do the very thing that the monkey does in the movie. Right. So they were trying to make it like chill to be like, nah, he, he could be, she could be fine, but she's got all that brain juice in her. So she's acting crazy. Yeah, the irony of the animal is that the human part is what drove her evil. Yeah. We're making it sound cornball, and it is kind of cornball, but uh, I think you'll people will understand that just because the central premise is utter bullshit, that doesn't mean the movie doesn't work. And when it comes to the editing, when it comes to the directing, when it comes to the performance of this actor as Alan, uh, and you know, a task that is not easy to pull off, I think the movie works. I, I, I still think it's a little long. It's almost two hours. I yeah. think that might be a little long for it. You know, I definitely felt the first time I saw it, I didn't feel the, the length on this watch. This is maybe the third time I've seen it. I felt the length a little bit this time. Like, man, we're taking our time a little bit with this here. I feel like maybe 145 would have been a better length than, than I think it's 158, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, there could have been some editing here and there, but overall it fucking works considering it's literally about a super intelligent monkey that's just murdering people on a whim. How is that a good movie, Justin? But it's, it's pretty freaking good. I think, I I, I think the thing that really, um, that sells it is, uh, Jason beige. We'll go with that. His performance as Alan he does a really great job of portraying someone who clearly used to be like, like everybody liked this guy. Like there's a scene in the beginning when he comes home from the hospital and he has like a welcome home party. And it's clearly, he's like a well-liked guy and not like a jock douchebag, but just like generally good person. And he does a really good job of as the movie goes on, he is becoming more and more, um, short. And he's, he's very like abrasive. He's he's very I don't want to say rude, but he is somewhat standoffish with his mother. They hint that there's some kind of like weird uh, kind of like, you know, she's overbearing. But he does a really good job of portraying a man who is like he's becoming uh, his niceness was a luxury. And now life has turned him into he's a little bit more. um, He's he's not as pleasant. The thing that I liked about it was as I was watching this movie, it got me thinking is how much of this is his condition wearing down on him? 
And how much of this is Ella maybe kind of like, like a sort of weird feedback loop. Um, Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. And I think the movie did a really good job at that. Uh, where it kind of went off the tracks for me was like the, when you have a movie about a guy who's in a wheelchair and he's quadriplegic and his monkey is carrying out his darkest impulses. That's the movie right there. That's it. You don't need a subplot with experimentation. And um, I don't need to see a guy performing cunnilingus on a woman who's hanging from a fucking whatever that support bar. Disagree strongly. <laughs> no, I, I'm drawing a fucking line in the sand. Is this we can argue, we can, we can meet, we can respectfully disagree on Kantian ethics versus whatever. I am not budging a fucking inch. There was no need to see him, see her put her boobies in his face, and then him. God, just I didn't need to see that. That I mean, made me that feel, was essential oh, viewing. God, no, it wasn't. It was. Oh fuck! It made me that made me more uncomfortable than seeing a monkey murder a woman by throwing a fucking hair dryer into a tub. Didn't bum me out at all. I thought it was great. Oh god! And then uh, the movie in a movie we were, where we see Stanley Tucci walking around in just a towel, sipping his wine. I was like, "Come on, Tucci, what's this?" But uh, God, that fucking scene! As soon as she grabbed the bar, I was like, "Don't do it, George! Don't fucking do it!" And he, then he did it. I was like, "God damn it, man!" I don't know. I I think I lean. I mean, again, I could be wrong about this. And I just said I wasn't going to comment on this aspect of the movie. But to me, this is a kind of sexuality we don't get to see in movies a lot, unless you've seen the movie Murder Ball, where they show you the instructional video they give to people in wheelchairs on how to have sex. Then if you've seen that documentary, then you've seen that instructional video. This was like a more uh, sexy version of that instructional video, which I think was very helpful for people. Look, I am all for humanizing any sort of marginalized, vulnerable group of people. I am a proponent of you get yours however you get yours. I'm not kink shaming. Um, but in a very, in a very, I sound like my father so much right now. I don't need to see it. You know, it's like how my dad, how my dad is like, yeah, I got nothing wrong with the gays. I got no beef with them. Two men want to kiss. That's great. I just don't need to see it. If he's wrong, this- Justin, he does need to see it. <laughs> and, and, and so much more. Okay, okay, I'm not going to disagree. Maybe my father does need to watch two men, just whatever. I, Justin Lord, don't need to see a woman hanging from a bar. You know what? That line in the sand is erased. You're right. I just had a fucking epiphany. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm on board. I, I will totally say that I think it is meant to be not just humanizing to the character and show us their relationship and her willingness to, like, try to meet him where he's at. Yes. I, mean, I think it's also meant to be sexy. And I will say that like, as much as I do think it works in the movie, it's not actually, I don't think it's actually sexy. I could be wrong. There might be people who see it and go like, wow, I really think that really got there. I think it's a little, it's a little silly, but it's a little silly, not because of the people and their physical condition. It's just a little silly, silly cause it's an eighties movie. And when 80s movies try to get sexy, there's a certain like uh, affect that at this point I find funny. I'm sure when I was like 12, I would have thought like, oh, it's a it's a hot part. But like as an adult, I'm like, all right, guys, I get it. We don't have to do the song and dance. That being said, I I didn't mind. I really thought it was a part of the movie where it, it was an attempt to display something that most Americans 
think is not a thing that exists in the world, which is yeah. sex for people who don't have full use of their bodies, you know? So I, I think it, I think it was fine. I do wonder if it plays over to a point of being exploitative, you know, like if, if I was someone who was in this position, if I would feel like, ill, they're sexualizing this in a way that I don't like, that's yeah. possible too. And I'm no expert on that. I'm not going to claim, but for me as a viewer, it didn't feel weird. And, and I don't think it, I don't think it was meant to be that if it, if it did function, but it is meant to be, you know, uh, uh, sexy in a way because, but because it's an eighties movie and the way that we show sexiness is like dim the lights and play a certain kind of music. There's gotta be some soft jazz or whatever. That whole thing is just a little too cornball for me. So it's hard for me. It would, regardless of who it was, you know, who's, who's getting it on in the, in the scene. It's, there's some part of the aesthetics of the age that creates a distance for me a little bit, which is part of the reason that I find erotic thrillers more fun than sexy, because as soon as they start to get erotic, I'm like, all right, come <laughs> on. I, you know, like I, 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 there's something about the aesthetics of the age that, that are a bit, a bit silly to me, but not bad. It's not, I don't think it was bad. I think that scene could have been very touching. Um, That's true. It could have been played a slightly it, different it, way. It, right. it kind of reminded me of a scene like um, the scene in Moonlight on the beach. Yes. Okay. Which was which is very awkward and very clumsy, but it's very touching. Um, I think this film could have could have gone that way. And again, I am in full support of showing that. Like, look, man, just because he's paralyzed from the neck down doesn't mean he's dead from the neck down. If you're picking up what I'm putting down. I mean, I didn't, still, need to, I didn't need that either. I don't know. Where that's fine. Going. Where but, we went yeah. there. Um, I like the fact that like it, it could have been very like tender and touching in its clumsiness. I just don't think it quite got there. I think I think for me, I'm going back to something I was saying before. The part of the movie that I don't need is not necessarily the experimentation. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a third or a second. I guess it's a second subplot, which is that our man might not be. Yes. Paralyzed. Yes. When That's th the part that I think, again, I'm not trying to deny anyone the catharsis of seeing him walk again. I get why that is pleasing for people, but I don't think it's necessary. Right. He could have just been happy. He could have found yes. a way to be happy the way he was. And I'm certainly not assigning that, but I just think like, it's weird when we already have so many other moving pieces between the relationship with his mom and his relationship with a, a, a woman who he makes love to or his friend and then his friend's relationship to the Dean. There's so many moving parts to the movie that then when we added also the doctor who your monkey murdered, he might've gotten your diagnosis wrong. It's like yeah. a whole other layer that like, I mean, granted it gives him the impetus for the monkey to go kill that guy, which is kind of like moves the movie forward. But then to have this thing at the end where now he's going to be able to walk it just feels like maybe this is too many things in one movie, but I don't know. I, I it, it didn't ruin the movie for me, but it did make me think like, God, there's just too many pieces on the board with this movie. I think, even though uh, to be fair, I think I still really appreciate the movie because not one piece of the moving pieces of this movie should work. Like this is a terrible idea for a movie in my mind. Like it should be really dumb. And I don't think it's really dumb. I just think it's maybe overstuffed with ideas. Yeah, I mean, to me, this the 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 subplot of him not actually uh, of of his paralysis being like reversible. That felt exploitive, and that felt the way that it's like, okay, so there's a lot of like controversy right now around Brendan Fraser's performance in The Whale, 
And it's like, okay, yeah, sure. He's, he's having this exercise in empathy, which is what Richard Roper called it, which whatever it looks like it. But the main criticism is like, at the end of the day, Brendan Fraser gets to take that fat suit off. And, you know, he gets to go out and be quote unquote normal, typical, if you will. And the fat suit won an award, which is so ridiculous. We don't have, yeah, I don't, I, I have a lot of complicated feeling. I don't, I don't want to see that movie, but we don't have time and no one wants to hear me talk about it. I have a lot of complicated issues with that film. Um, oh, I saw it and I, I don't have complicated issues. I have one issue, which is that I think it's a piece of shit, but okay, okay. I, I, that's nothing against Brendan Fraser as a person. I think people are very defensive of him and I think that's justified because he went through a lot and I think he deserves a comeback. Any other movie. I just wish it was any other movie, man. This movie is fucking sucks. And I get it. Like, uh, enemy of the show, Chris rejects was, you know, really honest with me about how emotional that movie made him. And I want to respect that. But I also think that the movie is a manipulative piece of shit. So, you know, it's like, if you love, if you like it, I don't think anyone's making a moral. I don't think you're a criminal because you like the movie. Like, so please don't feel that because I think it's terrible. You should feel bad. Uh, which, you know, that's how people interpret things sometimes. But uh, but I really do think it's bad. And uh, we don't have to waste time going. But, but you, see I'm, you, you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm 100%. I see what you're getting it, at. It, yeah, it, yeah, it's yeah. almost like, and then the monkey, he he defeats the monkey. And then he gets, by that, he can walk and everything is fine. And it's like. I mean, that's the issue, right? Why spend all this time humanizing his uh, condition to then say the true catharsis is for him to not have to be in that position, right? Yes. It kind of defeats yes. the purpose and it, you know, it, 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 it kind of puts it in a place where um, the movie, granted the movie's mostly about a fucking magic monkey, right? Like about a, a super monkey, but the movie still has this underlying idea where people are not treating him like a human who, who deserves autonomy and respect. And while just because he might need, physical help doesn't make him less of a person or less of an adult, right? They want to treat yes. him like a child. And all of that is deconstructed by the idea that the movie can only have a happy ending. If it's none of it's real, that yep. doesn't work. It doesn't, it, it, it's it almost, legitimately doesn't work. It's almost as bad. At, fuck it. It's worse than, Oh, but it was all a dream. It it just completely negates the entire movie. Like, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't cause it's still a cool movie. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not, Bat- the this monkey movie- part is still cool. It's just the monkey part is so cool. And, and to be fair, this is partly why I I did that uh, disclaimer at the beginning. I you know I don't know. Maybe someone is watching this who is in a similar physical position and they love the ending. So I'm not here to dictate how you feel about that. For me as a viewer, it felt like counterproductive because it doesn't feel to me. Though of course things are hard for him in the movie because of his condition. The movie seems to be up to this point, trying to make the case that the condition is not something to be looked down upon, that he can't just because he can't move all of his, his body is no reason to treat him less like a human being. So it seems really weird to wrap up so much emotional catharsis. Now, granted, I can't argue that his life won't be easier now. So I, I don't, in, in one sense, I think someone could get really hurt at the idea that there shouldn't be this solution. It just seems counterproductive to me because of the way that stories work. Right. If it's, it's the same as like all the stories where it's like, there's a, there's a creature who's ugly. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and you should love them even though they're ugly. And then of course, then they'll be less ugly. And of the, you know, the movie that, even though I was just saying how I don't really care about it, 
the movie that solves that is Shrek, right? Because they both I was just going to say, yep. The sh- yeah, the sh- they both yep. end up being trolls. It's, a, it's the only solution to a stupid idea that someone had when they made up a fairy tale hundreds of years ago, uh, which is like, you know, if, if, you, if you are tolerant of the bad thing, it might turn good. That doesn't, that's not the message you want to give people, right? That's yep. not actually a message. So anyways, um, I don't, I, I feel like there's actually probably a lot more we could say about this. I want to make sure we give time to dark half, but is there anything else that we should say about monkey shines? Well, you know, fully taking seriously that, like, I really do think the ending is an issue, but otherwise the movie's pretty good. All I have to say about this gorillas, biggest monkeys. I mean, I think that's fair. That's a fair point. That they could have just trained a gorilla, dude. That would have been amazing if this movie was about a fucking gorilla. Oh First of God. all, the, the idea that the gorilla would get out of the house secretly—I <laughs> thought the gorilla was in its. I thought the gorilla was in the house, but he he stuck out through an attic window. <laughs> I oh didn't hear God. his massive six hundred pound body just creaking the attic, crashing through the fucking wall, <laughs> yeah. and just ripping Stanley Tucci in half. <laughs> Oh my uh, God, God, make that move. Where's that movie? Oh, I also, God. I also want to say that the ease with which his love interest leaves him for the doctor is, I'm sure the book does a better job in the movie. It's the most lazy writing. I mean, ever. it's the tooch, but it's, it's just t- like, it's- they just really don't care. They're just like, yeah, no, she, uh, she just leaves with the doctor. It's fine. And I'm yeah. like, come on. I need a little bit of context here, guys. <laughs> All right. about, I'm still thinking about that fucking gorilla. Yeah. Oh, wait. That's the movie that we're going to make. It's going to be called Big Monkey Shines. Yeah, Big Monkey Shines. <laughs> okay. We're going we're to <laughs> take a quick break. Come back. We're going to talk about uh, whatever fucking year it came out. The Dark House. <laughs> the Dark House. We'll be right back. <laughs> You're so ridiculous right now. Thad Beaumont has a secret. I know all about it. A piece of himself he keeps hidden. You just don't want to give up George. You become attached to him. Locked away until he needs it. These behaviors could be interpreted as schizophrenia. Away from the light. Safe in the shadows. I wrote those words, and I have no recollection of doing it. But sometimes, secrets take on a life of their own. Thad Beaumont thought he didn't need George Stark anymore. The American way of death. That's it. He served his purpose. Time to lay him to rest. But George is not about to go quietly. You realize what you like when you write those books, do you? It's like watching Jack turn into high. We're here to question you in connection with the Capitol crime. Evidence says you did it. George Stark has somehow come to life. Hello, George. I've come close to believing ghost stories. Yes, you're talking about a man who never was. No! He wants to take over your life. Can't you see that? Based upon a book by Stephen King comes George A. Romero's masterful vision of a nightmare come true. Are you ready? Just waiting on you. The dark half. And we are back to talk about 1993's horror adaption of Stephen King's 1989 novel, novel of the same name. <laughs> the dark half. We're going to talk about the fucking dark half. Okay. 
<clears throat> a little bit of backstory for me about this movie. Okay. The first Stephen King book I ever read was Thinner. Oh, okay. Okay. That was a, wasn't that originally a Richard Bachman? It was a Richard Bachman novel. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Now, if you know anything about the background of Stephen King and Richard Bachman, um, Richard Bachman was his uh, pen name. Stephen, his, he was outed. Um, he, he, he wanted to write, Stephen King wanted to prove that he could still write a book that would be judged on its own merits as opposed to relying on the name of Stephen King. And so he had this pseudonym, Richard Bachman, and I don't know the exact story of how it happened, but he was basically like someone found out who Richard Bachman was and King had to like come out and be like, oh, blah. So, so Richard Bachman and Stephen King, I've always had like a weird like, man, I can't believe he did that. That's so fucking cool. And the dark half was his reaction to being... um to Richard Bachman kind of being like outed as like a as 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 a figment of his imagination as sure. a gnome yeah. a gnome de plume if you will um and i think it's like even though i i had said off mic that it's it's kind of like mid-level king or did i say i found i don't know when i said that but at one point i said i think it's mid-tier king i still think the idea i still think the the germ of the idea of what this movie is about is a fucking fantastic reaction to what happened with him and 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 Richard Bachman. And then my man still wrote books as Richard Bachman after that as a kind of fuck you to the people who uh to the people who 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 outed him about it. Um <clears throat> all that being said, uh I'm not sure that the movie is as good as all that is. It's fine. Um I just I can't really take Timothy Hutton seriously. Okay, so that's what I was going to say here is that, I mean, I think there are things I like about the movie. I will say, I think some of the the kills that the the uh, you know scary version of him pulls off are pretty good. Jimothy uh, Hutton, you know, Jimothy Hutton goes sure, after him. Yeah. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but I think that the part of it that I really think doesn't work, and really shows to me a lack of imagination. Is the guy idea that Timothy Hutton has to be both Thad Beaumont and George Stark? Yes, because not all twins look alike. Yeah. Many twins do not look alike, especially the ones that are male and female. And in the book, they never suggest that they look exactly alike. The description of George Stark, I think it's his name, right? Yep, is nothing like the description of Thad Beaumont. That's part of the point, right? And, they actually want to not to interrupt, but I do want to make a, an important distinction that the, the book has. <clears throat> and I just I might be mistaken about this, and this might be just be me, you know, kind of imprint and printing this on there. George Stark, the author, is more of a character from a George like the character of George Stark in the dark half is more like the character Alexis Machine that's in yes, George Stark's yes, books. yes. And that's not really made. That's not really distinct. That's not really. They don't really make that distinct in the in the in the film. Right. And I think that the the, I'm sure whoever did it thought the inside of this thing was really cool to have him play both. But you know, I'll say I'll actually totally defend Timothy Hutton 
as Thad Beaumont, the fucking, oh, he's great as Thad Beaumont, the fucking beta cuck writer who's <laughs> being haunted by his own creation. He's great as that, but every moment with him as George Stark is stupid. The accent doesn't work. He looks like an idiot in that outfit. The only part that's cool is towards the end when he's starting to like physically deteriorate. That's fucking cool. But again, that's because you can't tell it's him anymore, and he can hide behind the makeup. All the parts before that where he's supposed to be intimidating, they don't fucking work. And it's it's can, a real can, can bummer. We, can we say real quick, though, without going off too much of a tangent, he might have been a shitty George Stark. That would have been a fantastic Randall flag, though. I do think that's fair. No, that's very fair. Yeah. Um, also, in the book, the his wife, Liz Beaumont, who's played by Amy Madigan, who I love. She's great. Uh, in the book, they both have... I think the only way to describe it is like kind of psychic intuition about George Stark. They just sense stuff that's happening with him. Yeah. And the movie very rarely does that so that the few scenes when it does do it, it just feels weird. It doesn't, they don't make enough hay of it, let's say, for it to make any sense. If they had played it up more, that could have been another sort of interesting, but also kind of menacing part of the movie, but they don't do it. And in fact, like a lot of Stephen King adaptations, they just want it to be a thriller. They want this to be yes. a thrilling, uh, kind of scary movie. Horror, but more of a thriller. And uh, that's just not what the fucking book is, right? You need a lot more of the, the context of the subtext. You need a lot more of the inner lives of these characters. And the part that drives me the most crazy is uh, an actor who I love in other things. Uh, my man, what is his name again? Michael, Michael Rooker. Rooker. So fucking toothless in this movie. Not only toothless, he's a fucking backwoods southern sheriff. We're in Maine, motherfuckers. Where did this guy come from? The he's wor- up there, he, like, hey, yeah, I can't let you do that. Blah, blah, blah. Like doing the worst the, Alan, pa- the worst Alan Pangborn, the worst Alan Pangborn. And there's only been like three, right? Like, nope, there's, there's been there was Ed Harris, who I think is the right, best. There was right. Scott Glenn, and then there was um Tom Skerritt in in Cujo. Oh, I forgot about Tom. Scare oh, and who was I, and and um was it Brian Dennehy in uh the Dead Zone? That's Pangborn in the Dead Zone. Yeah, because it's it's a Castle Rock. No, he's George Bannerman. Yeah. No, I'm think... sorry, he's George Bannerman in Cujo because he gets killed okay. by Cujo. So yeah, okay. he's no, he's 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 Pangborn in a. No, he's a. Oh, what yeah. the fuck? This isn't Stephen King. He's Pangborn. No, he's Bannerman in the Dead Zone. This has been the Sheriff's of Castle Rock with Liam and Justin. Yeah, I think Pangborn is only in three things, right? He's in this, he's in Needful Things, and he's in the show. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, I, I stand corrected. And I like Scott Glenn on the show, too. And, of yeah. course, Ed Harris is is good. This one, and, and this is nothing against Michael Rooker. I love Michael Rooker. He's just miscast. He's His energy is off for this character. It doesn't yes. feel right. And... uh And anyways, I just, the whole thing feels like a very kind of like rushed through thriller film. It's lacking some of the more horrific elements of having this version of this guy who isn't you, but it feels like a reflection of you. And I get they're trying to represent that by having the same actor. It doesn't work. It would make more sense if they focused on the evidence idea than him looking like him. because. No one's a lot, you know, they they don't make enough hay of that, you know, to, so to speak to, for it to mean anything. And that's the whole movie. And honestly, this, again, we've talked about this before. 
I don't think there can't be a good King adaptation, you know, and I think there's a few that, that we think are pretty good, but like this one does the classic, like all that stuff, all that extra stuff King talks about is a waste of time. We just need the basic plot and that will translate. Yes. And it and it doesn't translate. And it's a shame because the elements that are there are pretty fun, you know, and I think there's there's the skeleton of a fun movie here. But all the parts that are interesting in the movie that really could like be explored are just like bits from the book that were not fully sort of uh uh fleshed out. And I hate that. I wish they had given it a little bit more of the book. And worried a little less about trying to make it, it, it just feels like it's trying to be a bit like, I don't mean sexy and literal sex. I mean, sexy and just like a flashy thriller and it doesn't yes. really get there. You know, I really, I, I mean, th- this is the problem. One of the problems I have with this movie is, um, it's one of the problems I have with the book is that while the idea of this sort of like, uh, the parasitic twin the undeveloped twin in the brain. Yeah. I think that's like, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, I remember when, um, when, um, Malignant came out, it was go. Cool. It's just, it's the fucking dark half and fucking basket case. I really think they could have, and Stephen King himself in the, in the source material could have dived a little bit further into the weird, like body heart element of it. Like there is a really cool story there where George, where, where, where George Stark is a kind of like, uh, what was the name of the fucking uh, Professor X's like evil twi- uh, Cassandra Nova, like a weird, um, Tulpa esque thing that is just like the, like that is not entirely, I don't know, like that the idea that there's this like disposed soul floating around out there that was supposed to be born but wasn't and just somehow comes back. I think is, I think that's a neat idea. And this movie is just instead like, oh, he has cowboy boots on and he's twangy. Like, I uh, I don't know. I mean, I'll agree with you on the movie. It's been so long since I read the book that I can't defend the book. But my memory of the book is that <clears throat> I felt like it worked. I felt like it it was OK that they don't really flesh out more of what's going on. And there was something left to be kind of like unspoken about what's happening. My yeah. reading of it was that that was fine, but to be fair, I read the book when I was like a senior in high school. So I don't know that I remember enough of it to really say if it would still work. And I've told you, there are plenty of Stephen King things that I love that when I go back to, I'm kind of like, Oh, it's fine. Like it just doesn't uh, yeah. hit me in the same way. So my memory of the book is that it's great. And I was so bummed out when I saw the movie, cause I definitely saw it after I read the book and was like, Oh no, this, this isn't quite right. E- even though a lot of the in particular uh, uh, specific elements from the book are there. Like I said, the skeleton is there. I just don't think they flesh it out. And it feels like the parts of it that are there are maybe some of the parts that people don't love from the book you know so i I don't know Uh, again i the part that really fails me the most is is our man uh uh uh, hutton but uh but the whole thing is a little like just not all present and that bums me out i do want to say because it's a very brief part but i there's something about robert joy in this as the guy who's going to rat him out 
he's so slimy. And oh, it's so yeah, it's so funny because it's such a small little role, but he's so memorable as like as soon as you see that guy's face, you're like, ah, oh, this fucking guy, you know. And so like I, I want to lift that up um, as being pretty solid. And uh, and you know I think some of the some of the like random kind of uh, smaller characters um, are kind of fun. Royal but- Dano is is amazing in anything he's in. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I just think like. There are things there that I could say like, oh, that's pretty good. You know, it's not all bad, but still there's a lot of disappointment there. And I think even more so if you like the book a lot, I think fans of the book were probably the most let down by this movie. Uh, But I think even if you go in with no opinions of the book, there's not enough there I think for your average horror movie fan to say like, Oh, this movie's great. It really works for me. I think the concept is interesting. Um, it's kind of the, it's actually, this was a good pairing. Justin monkey shines as a concept. That's kind of dumb, but the movie works for the most part. This is a concept that should be awesome. And it just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. It, it doesn't even, and honestly the most gross effective moment as far as a horror movie is the beginning when the kid has the eyeball in his brain. Yep. That shit is fucked. That, that, that gave me nightmares when I was a kid. I almost think this movie would have been a far more effective, like Cronenberg film, as opposed to like a George Romero film. Uh, yeah. I mean, no offense, you know, we both love George Romero, but there's, there, I don't know that he brought anything in particular to this movie that to, to, to lift it up. Whereas if, I mean, granted there's not, let's be clear if Cronenberg brought body horror to this movie, he's injecting it. It's not really there in the book or at least yeah, not exactly, that I remember, yeah. but that's okay. I would let Cronenberg inject body horror into anything. Honestly, he could make Puss in Boots, the last wish too, and have body horror in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I mean like it, it's not a bad movie. I don't like it. It's, you know, it, it's just, I don't know, not to sound like too much of an asshole to me. And I'm not bashing the book. It's a very mid adaption of a very mid source material for me personally. It at least feels to me like the movie isn't taking seriously what might be scary about the book. The yes. idea that you have made this thing and that that thing is maybe related to a part of you and now you can't control it and it wants its revenge. It wants to be real. Um, the movie treats all that very lightly there's a there's a there's a part where his wife again i think that actress is great is talking about how when he would write those books the the george stark books it's like he became a different person right yeah uh clear echoes of stephen king's own alcoholism and drug problems you know his own worries about who he is and what he's about uh and and really his own mental illness right and uh and the movie throws it out as like it's like when you're watching a movie and someone goes, well, there is a key and then, you know, that key matters, but we're not going to talk yeah. about it again. That's how they treat the idea that he had two different personalities as a writer. Well, that's a deep anxiety, not just for Stephen King as, a, as the writer of this book, but for a lot of people that there's this way in which they are not one full integrated person. And you could really play that up for feelings of fear and terror which is what you're trying to get at in this fucking movie and the movie's just kind of like yeah i don't know it's a thing it's uh it's it's yeah. weird let's keep going and i think it that is emblematic of the way i just i suspect that george romero didn't give a fuck about this source material 
that's no, that's what the movie communicates is that this was a job he had to do and he didn't care about the original story that much. So two things quick about is when you mentioned uh, the idea of not being a complete person, but instead being like, um, like having two different ideas, two different beings as a source of horror. I read an interview once with someone who it was about uh, the debate as to whether or not disassociative uh, it's multiple personality. I don't know what the technical uh, term is at this point, but it was about whether or not that is a real um, disease. And they were talking to someone who had it and they said that they had felt like on the outskirts of their personality, there was another consciousness trying to push in. And I don't know why that shook me so bad. But that could have been explored this. I mean, that idea that like maybe occasionally there was another part of you that would just kind of like get in the driver's seat without you realizing it, but being just different enough where people around you would notice something was off. There is there is fear and horror there. And I, I definitely agree with you that that could have been explored more. And also, um, the idea that he becomes a different person when he's writing and his family doesn't know him and that maybe Romero didn't have enough respect for the source material. You could say this is another case of like the same thing that happened with The Shining when Stanley Kubrick adapted it. Like The Shining the novel was Stephen King's like apology to his family for being a fucking monster. And Kubrick was like, "Yeah, but ghosts." And I think that there I don't think this was as intense uh of of a of a sort of situation for Stephen King. But I do think that maybe Stephen King wrote this because he was a little bit pissed off that people, uh, for no reason, outed him as Richard Bachman. Yeah. And I don't really think that 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 was just kind of played up like, oh, no, he's killing the people who who who, who outed him. Like, um, and there was nothing really given to that to that idea more than than that. Uh, and I, I I don't know. I, I like I'm with you. Like, th there's clearly like. The source material here isn't clearly, um, it's kind of mined for, for shock and, 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 and sexy elements. And then like the parts that don't really translate well to like obvious ideas on the silver screen are just kind of done away with. And I think those parts are what, you know, really make this book, you know, regardless of my, uh, personal feelings on it, an interesting read. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm not offended that you're saying it's made. I don't have strong memories of it, uh, but I do think there's in my brain, there's more to it. And I feel like this movie doesn't particularly care about that stuff, which is, yeah, you know, it is what it is. And I'm, it certainly doesn't tarnish uh, George Romero's memory that he made some movies that weren't great. Right. But no, not uh, at all. no one's perfect. No, but it, it, it was interesting to revisit two of these. One of these that doesn't get maybe the attention it deserves monkey shines is like one where I'd say like, okay, we're going to list Romero movies. Let's not forget monkey shines the same way. It's not the masterpiece that Martin is. I think Martin is an amazing movie, but yeah. it's still worth remembering that he did monkey shines. It's really great. Dark half. It just doesn't feel like him. It's, it's, you know, much like the ward. I believe he made it, but I don't think it's essential for his filmography, you know? So, yes. So, uh, uh, the word is carpenter, by the way. Uh, for I think most people know that, but just in case. Uh, yeah. so, anyways, uh, I'm glad that we did this. I do think the fact that neither one of us have seen Bruiser means we got to come back to Romero as a topic again. Uh, but still, I think this was a good. This is a good double feature. Oh, I'm there. Yeah. 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 
All right. Well, this was this was a great episode, and I'm glad that we did it. Yay! Both of these movies are available on Tubi, which is great. Um. So yeah, thanks for listening. You can head to cinepunks.com for more episodes of this podcast and several others. Um. Be sure to check out. Go to patreon.com backslash cinepunks in order to become a patron if you wish. Uh, be sure to check out www.xlvacx.com for Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, sxcoffeeroasters.com for SX Coffee Roasters, and mechanicalsharkmedia.com for Mechanical Shark Media. And check out Liam's roughcutshirts.com. It's roughcutfanclub.com. Roughcutfanclub, whatever. Okay, cool. Thanks. All right. Bye. We love you. Bye. Do you scan the night sky in search of unidentified aerial phenomena? Do you lose sleep over strange projects funded by the CIA? Ever wonder which orifices ectoplasm comes out of? Come explore the unexplained and unexplainable with us on our podcast, Weird, Obscure, and Possibly Unsafe. We'll talk about telepomancy, haunted railroads, sentient umbrella spirits, mind-altering video games, remote viewing, SpongeBob conspiracy theories, and only gets weirder for there. Each episode will share three stories about all the weird things they tell you not to believe. Weird, obscure, and possibly unsafe. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. Hey! hey.